0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Zena Hitz is tutor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. After receiving her Master of Philosophy at Cambridge University, Professor Hitz earned her Ph.D. at Princeton University, where she studied the political and philosophical works of Plato and Aristotle. She has taught at Auburn University, the University of Maryland, was a visiting fellow for the James Madison program at Princeton University, and a visiting research professor at the Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. Her most recent book, Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, makes a moving argument about the life of the mind... And that book is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Zena Hitz, welcome to Thinking in Public.
1: It's so great to be here, Dr. Mueller.
0: I really enjoyed your book. I, I knew I would from the title because it's a pretty courageous title in the year 2020 to write about the hidden pleasures of an intellectual life because the very subtitle of your book, the title being Lost in Thought, uh, it runs counter to the idea that a hidden life is an unimportant life, uh, but that's really pretty central to your argument, as I read it.
1: You're absolutely right. It it is central. And at the time when I began this writing, you know, I it it began with a short essay for First Things about five years ago. Um, I thought I was the only person in the world who thought this way, <laughs> apart from maybe some of my colleagues at St. John's. And one of the things i found is that actually, there's a lot of people out there, it's one of the things you discover as a writer, as I'm sure you know, lots and lots of people out there who um, understand that something's gone off in our educational culture, in our broader culture, and that uh, we need to recover elements of our humanity from uh, you know some of our economic tendencies, some of our educational tendencies, some of our broader cultured, cultural tendencies. So uh, yes, being hidden, um, doing things for their own sake, uh, not making a splash. Those, I think, are crucial uh, for us.
0: Yeah, I have to tell you, i had read many of your essays before, but particularly enjoyed the book. And uh, I I guess one way to put this is I really uh, appreciate your candor in uh, uh, identifying some of the uh, uh, sacred cows of academia these days. And one of them is the phrase making a difference. And uh, so I actually, one of the things I wanted to uh, ask you about is uh, whether you intended to make a difference by writing your book in which you so successfully lampoon uh, the, uh, the goal of making a difference, but I'll just leave it at that.
1: You have have hit a bit of an irony in in the whole project because in um, in fact, I did write this book. I, I did want it to be, uh, an invitation from an equal to other equal adults uh, into thinking and studying for its own sake. And I think to some extent, I do do that in the book. But you're absolutely right that my, my primary uh, motivator was thinking, well, here's this uh, practice, you know, reading and studying and thinking and teaching in the liberal arts. Uh, it's clearly endangered. It's clearly on the verge of catastrophe um and wouldn't it be good if people started talking openly about what mattered about it and why we cared about it so in many ways this writing is a is a is a political project it's an it's an effort to to move things in a particular direction um but i did try um i think candor i'm happy to hear because it was something i was aiming for i think a lot of our political uh interventions these days uh they're aimed at influencing management or becoming a manager <laughs> and it was very important to me to speak on a level that is this is my experience this is what i've seen uh, this is what i have seen in myself this is what i struggle with this is what i think is precious uh, so that my readers might feel uh empowered to think about these things for themselves and uh, make a contribution however they see fit in their circumstances.
0: Well, I I look forward to asking that question because I I think myself as an educator and a thinker, one one of my frustrations is that I do think all thought makes a difference. It just doesn't make the kind of difference that the people who talk about making a difference want to make or demand (laughs) or or want to insist upon.
1: It's part of our social media age. You know, everything becomes a kind of a spectacle. Everything becomes a media event. And you can really get caught up in that, and you can lose touch with with uh, what's really happening in the real world, uh, which matters a lot more than that stuff.
0: There's an even more subversive element to your argument, because you really start out and end by making clear that the intellectual life is not the same thing as the academic life. They sometimes actually can be at odds with one another, and that the intellectual life is for everyone, um, not just for those who think of themselves maybe even less for those who think of themselves as intellectuals.
1: That's right. I, uh, I wanted to emphasize that because p- one of the things that's happening, there's multiple dimensions, I think, to the, the crisis in education that we're in. Um, but one of them is that there's a kind of hyper-specialization that is, uh, it's somehow thought that intellectual life is something that should be done by uh, people who, only by people who are specially trained and accomplished in it, and that we should defer to these people's expertise uh, and I, I, I'm trained as a scholar, and I believe in scholarship. Uh, but I also think that scholarship matters because it helps ordinary people uh, think and reflect. You know, it's you know we've got to preserve the books uh, that and publish the books that help us to think and reflect. But uh, in the end, what matters is uh, ordinary thinking, ordinary reflection. Uh, it's, it's what it does for individual human beings uh, that, that, that matters in the end. And our, our academic institutions have lost track of that, I think, to a large extent.
0: Well, I think the church has, too. Christians have lost track of that. And uh, I was particularly moved by your repeated citations of the work of Jonathan Rose uh, in the uh, intellectual life of everyday people in England, uh, or, or at least in Britain, um, and uh, their interior lives, as as he chronicled them over a period of time, it was just very moving. It reminds me of what ought to be uh, a very strong instinct, I think, among Christians to say this is an intellectual vocation to which all Christians are called uh, in one way or another.
1: Oh yeah, well you're you're preaching to the choir here on that, <laughs> because I do think it's um, it's a part of our our. Christian life it's part of the in a way I think it is an extension of uh, What in in my tradition we call the universal call to holiness? Um, you know that each person has their own relationship with god that has to be pursued uh, There's an analog a related analog to that in the intellectual life. That is everyone uh, Has uh, the desire to understand and a capacity for it. It varies from person to person. It's different but yes, I love those stories in Jonathan Rose's book. And there are more, um, you know, that's the British tradition. I've been I've been trying to uh, goad some of my students into working on some of the history of those movements in the U.S. because there are a lot of stories from the U.S. like that too. Uh, you know, there's uh, even stories that are well-known but we don't think of in that context, like Frederick Douglass right. uh, you know, teaching himself to read and, and then reading books and becoming not just you know, a runaway slave, but a free man, you know, a, a man who could think for himself and, and could speak eloquently and could uh, proclaim his dignity and the dignity of other people. Uh, it's, it's such an important part of, uh, you know, what, what we'd call um, uh, liberation, ordinary kinds of liberation for ordinary people. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it's, it's not less important than it used to be. It's maybe more important.
0: Um, I think of uh, of figures such as Alexis de Tocqueville or Hector Saint John de Crèvecoeur, uh, who also made very clear the American farmer was an intellectual <laughs> in, in a sense you don't that's think that, of that right. in, in <laughs> the time true. of the American founding.
1: That's true. Yeah, that's something I wish I knew more about. Uh, the The things that I've looked at are more the um, American analogs of the, uh, things Jonathan Rose talks about. So. Mm-hmm. No, in my hometown, San Francisco, there's a Mechanics Institute library that I went to when I was in high school. And I didn't quite understand what it was. And now I know a little more. I know that the Mechanics Institute libraries were places where working people would would get together. uh, People who um, maybe weren't uh, literate from childhood or whose parents hadn't been literate. Uh, They came to this country, they were working people and they wanted a way to develop themselves uh, so they formed these associations, and they—it um, coincides. You know, we we take it for granted, but the turn of the century, twentieth century, they published so many books uh, in paperback, in inexpensive paperbacks. All of this knowledge and understanding became widely available for the first time, and uh, that made possible a real massive movement uh, towards literacy and uh, thoughtful reflection and. And a kind of egalitarianism came out of that that I think is really precious and that we're 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 losing touch with.
0: Well, there's outright condescension towards it. I mean, uh, as, as you look at the dominant uh, knowledge class, as they define themselves today, th- there's a real antipathy towards someone uh, picking up uh, a classic and reading it without their tutelage. Uh, you know, how, how could they understand it? They can't theorize. And uh you, 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 also have you know the the looking down upon so called middle brow culture, which actually represented the fact that my grandparents were reading pretty substantial literature that they didn't choose; it came to them uh, in the mail, but they were seriously reading it, and uh, that's that. That's now again uh, uh, condescended upon.
1: You know, I it's so funny because this is one of the the movements I've made in my life. I remember a time when I would find people out in the public sphere holding forth about, say, the history of ideas or the history of philosophy. To me, it sounded like they were making terrible mistakes and it was very crude and it was maybe a little self-indulgent. And I I remember having this condescending attitude and seeing things the way I do now where the danger is so much not uh, non-experts getting a little self-indulgent. It's... It's the danger that anyone will think ideas are interesting at all. <laughs> so right. you know, We have to uh, respect and honor uh, the thinking that people do, uh, and uh, get cut people slack for not sounding like experts. Um, and a lot of our language of expertise is unfortunately some of it is real wisdom and understanding, but some of it is sort of gatekeeping techniques to preserve our territory, preserve our turf, and um, that's really counter to what i think the mission of an academic life should be it should be about disseminating learning and knowledge spreading and helping people reflect and and not about hoarding it for yourself
0: one of the things i try to talk to people about is uh just the the normal human lifespan and and what that means for uh, the awakening of the intellectual life because somewhere in uh in early adolescence comes the acquisition of complex cognition and so you're never going to meet really a 4-year-old philosopher, but you're not going to meet a 14-year-old who isn't one in some sense.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah.
0: And and so when they all of a sudden it's not just thinking but thinking about thinking, recognizing they are thinking in the in the presence of other minds thinking big questions. Uh I think our educational system is almost designed to stifle uh that natural intellectual impulse that's coming out in young people. And, uh, in a testing regime and, uh, in, uh, the quantification of, of all learning to where it, it's, it's almost impossible to do that. And, and by the time in late adolescence, they arrive on a college or university campus, um, th- they are intellectually often not much beyond where they were at 13 or 14.
1: No, I, I think that's really right. And I, it's not just the, the, the testing regimes, uh, I think it's also uh, the breakdown of uh, the focus on skills uh, rather than on uh, the things that people really like to learn. Now, when I was uh, a kid, you know, I I read books because uh, I was interested in what they were about. Uh, and by reading a lot, I picked up the various skills, reading skills, writing skills, skills of analysis uh so they, if you if you focus on uh, learning outcomes as skills <laughs> that that can be tested you're you're breaking up that does that natural human desire to know which is never a desire to acquire a skill it's you you want to uh you want to have conveyed to you why the skills right. matter and we do that the tr- the old fashioned ways by giving people great novels or Um, you know, raising really interesting historical questions and and the skills follow from that. So I I think you're right. I'm very concerned that uh, young people are arriving in college um, not knowing uh, even what it means to learn or why learning matters uh, because they've been um, sort of anesthetized by this intellectually deadening uh, common core testing process.
0: I read uh, incredibly intensely, so much so I regularly got in trouble for reading when I wasn't supposed to be reading. As
1: like. <laughs> same here, same here. Uh,
0: but I lost myself in books, and I, I had a couple of great assets I didn't understand. One of them was I had an educational system that uh, it included a lot of teachers who loved teaching, and they loved students' reading, and so they would just let me kind of read an issue out, follow follow an interest and uh every one of those interests has continued into my adult lifetime and i'm just in- incredibly thankful for that but the the other thing that took place during that time was that uh i i basically came to understand that i could actually read things kind of backwards and so i'll just tell you this this is this is this is going to be humiliating to speak to a literature professor but uh when i was uh <laughs> When I was, <laughs> mean,
1: I've already humiliated myself a hundred times. This so. is
0: this is the way it works. So I read uh, Jaws, the Peter Benchley novel, which was a blockbuster when I was in high school, and I read it. And uh, again, I was a teenager. I was living in the coast. I had a fascination with sharks. What's not to like? Uh, and it was uh, it was after that that I read Moby Dick. Yeah. And uh, and I realized the lesser made me appreciate the greater
1: oh yes uh, in
0: in a sense that i also realized peter benchley didn't come up with this he just changed a whale into a shark and uh, <laughs> added some crude language and sex scenes otherwise it was basically you know the same tale and only much better told by melville
1: right. and uh
0: so again i have people tell me obviously there are things you don't you shouldn't read they're things I don't want to recommend people to read but but sometimes you you get a you get even a popular culture take on a tale and then you realize Oh, this has been told better before. Now I want to now I want to get to that.
1: It's true, but I I also think that that's also a a sign that popular literature, I mean, you could take it the other way that is popular literature is not as bad as people think it is. I mean, it's true that there are better things. Right. Uh, I mean, Moby Dick's one of my favorite books. You know, I wrote my senior essay on it uh, as a college student. Um, but that those themes about the confrontation of, of nature and, and the violence of nature and the sense of adventure and the mysteries of the sea, all of that stuff is told in a, in a variety of stories. And, uh, there are signs that, um, ordinary people with, you know, pretty ordinary taste in literature are going yeah. after the same things that, uh, that, the uh,
0: yeah, what I could note as a 16 year old is though, that, uh, that Melville's world was a theological world. That great white whale was more than a whale. Uh, But the shark is only a shark. Uh, You know, uh, uh, there's a minimization. When when you began reading, I was really touched uh, as a father, grandfather, and uh, as a sibling. I was just really touched by you telling us that you learned to read because your older brother taught you to read— (laughs)
1: That's right. We spent a lot of time together when we were little and the legend was I actually don't remember learning how to read But this was the parent the family legend was that he taught me how to read. We were both very little and we both read all the time and um, You know, we had this sort of childhood um, uh, Love of knowledge. It was especially love of science love of knowledge about animals and the natural world was what especially drove us, um, but it was uh, really formative for me, and, and not something anyone planned or anyone uh, put into place. It just sort of happened as it happened. Um, but I'm very grateful. I'm grateful yeah. to have had a family that um, nurtured that.
0: Well, I, I, just as a, again, as a theologian, uh, thinking about common grace, it just reminds me of the grace of siblings, uh, the, the fact that, yeah. that there's a real gift to children in siblings, uh, to share experiences, even to share a love of reading, even to share, as you said, a small civilization of stuffed animals with the walrus as the appointed head.
1: <laughs> yes. Wally the walrus, as uh, you know, was an important figure for us. Uh, <laughs> he was president of the uh, animal land, which was the nation that our stuffed animals formed. Um, and my brother wrote a little song, a sort of anthem for him. Um, and uh, yeah, it was wonderful and yes, siblings are a great grace. Uh and I think it's something worth remembering for modern families who, which often feel uh like the demands of children on parents are so demanding that there's so much your siblings can give right uh, to you as a child. Um and in a way facilitating that is one of the best things you can do as a parent. Um and just 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 let us let us work out for ourselves what um, you know what we want to be learning and doing Um, anyway
0: yeah you write about the joys of intellectual life which were inculcated in you as a child and as a college student and then uh, you said with neither roots in nor appeals to revealed religion so uh, you do uh, identify as a uh, as a theist indeed as a roman catholic that's a part of your identity but you make a very important point that I think both Protestants and Roman Catholics, and for that matter, uh, all within the uh, Christian uh, genetic tree need to think about very carefully, and that is that God, by the Imago Dei, has given this intellectual capacity to all human beings.
1: Yes, I think that's really one of the things about the book that matters most to me. Um, because I grew up in such a secular environment, and uh Really even now have been in secular environments most of my life. You know, I converted as an adult uh, when I was uh, thirty two um, after I'd already finished graduate school. Uh, so it's it's still true that um, many of my uh, closest connections are to the secular world uh, and i I knew from my own experience that um, there were that learning had helped me. It had helped open up my life. Uh, to receive faith when faith came. Uh, And uh, I think that that's true for a lot of things which I would call human goods, um, you know, being in nature, uh, you know, which Christians think of as loving creation. Uh, But that's something really everyone uh, can appreciate. And learning is the same way. It's, uh, It's a common human heritage and um, one of the reasons why that matters to me is because I, I feel as if uh, Christians and other uh, very religious people, Muslims and Jews also, they've, they've felt themselves increasingly cut off from the secular world. And I understand that, and I understand the reasons for it, and there are some good reasons for it. But I, I wanted us to remember the bonds of unity between us. Um, And uh, one of the spiritual writers who's helped me a lot uh, is Catherine Doherty, uh, who founded uh, the community Madonna House that I lived in for a time. She talked about how um, uh, a human good is like a wedge uh, in the door between you and another human being. Uh, And that door is the door that the gospel can go through. But the way you get the door open (laughs) is through something you have in common uh whether that's learning uh or love of gardening or knitting or all the millions of things uh, that 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 human beings share in common it's not yeah. to say that there aren't real problems out there but i i do think that we've we've lost touch a bit with those common elements
0: well that's a part of of my uh biblical theological understanding uh shared uh with uh, augustine by the way who was uh, one of my great heroes is that uh, you're never going to meet uh, a human being who is not made in the image of God, and thus with whom you really cannot have a conversation. Um, there's a common humanity there. There's not an evolutionary accident. It's uh, it's the creator's design, and uh, and thus there is the gift of communication. And here's the thing, like I point out, you can just take the most radical Marxist and then the, uh, the most radical uh, rightist— uh, and and put them together in a debate, they, there's very little communication. But if you sit them next to each other on a plane, there just might be a real conversation.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that happens at uh, St. John's where I teach is uh, we have a very uh, politically, religiously diverse group of students. Uh, these days they come from all over the world. Um, some are religious, most are not. Some are conservative, most are not. Um but we have this common core of these books um which we've read together for a long time for decades at St. John's and when we get into the deep questions into the fundamental questions you know i find that those differences tend to become less important and we we find ways of communicating with one another um that that are beyond sort of the level at which we would uh, get into you know twitter fights or or facebook wars or <laughs> this kind of a thing so we, there's, there's, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I think it's, um, yeah, Christ uh, died for uh, the whole human race, right? So it's not just that we're created in the image of God, we're, uh, we're redeemed. Our, the promise of redemption is offered to everyone, and uh, we have to be alive to that and to make sure that we're doing all we can to make sure that that offer is really being made. That can be made in ordinary forms of communion and connection. Uh, as much as in um, direct evangelization and, and all of those other good things.
0: Well, as an evangelical, I'd have to say you're right, going the other direction. You you really cannot communicate unless you're willing to have a conversation. And uh, even if it begins in one-way speech, uh, it, it has to eventuate in a two-way conversation.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, no, and we, it, it, for some reason, it's part of our educational model. We think about education as the transmitting of information. That means you think of a person as someone who should receive information. We see this, I was thinking about it in the context of this uh, coronavirus, uh, the pandemic we're in the middle of, that uh, so many people get so frustrated at what, who knew what when and what they should have known and what they should have done and what this and that. And you know, you have to respect that each individual has, has their own journey of learning and uh, seeing things as they are. And it can be frustrating, but you you have to live with it. That's part of part of what um living with other people is all about. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah. I I I'd like us to to recover a culture of of exchange and conversation. And uh,
0: we also have the inability to know whom we see. Uh, we 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 don't know uh, we don't know who they are until we're in conversation. So. I grew up in a, 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 a not wealthy family, uh, yeah. very much not wealthy, uh, living in a little little home, 800 square feet with four kids, two parents, uh, and, uh, and, and, and in a row of them. And mm-hmm. uh, there was an elderly lady who lived next door to us, and uh, she didn't have family. She just lived there by herself. And uh, anyway, she developed a friendship with me when I was about nine to 10 years old. And mm. it became very, very powerful. And only later in life did I figure out uh, and 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 come to know what it meant that she was a nuclear physicist, uh, <laughs> and uh, had been one of the first women who had, she'd been involved in the Manhattan Project.
1: Well, isn't that something?
0: At, and but but she just so she, but she would hand me things. She would show me things. Uh, mm-hmm. She she just awakens all kind of conversations that just opened a world to me. And, uh, you know, then I go back and work on my third grade homework. Uh, but she was just I look at that and I thought, you know, I had no ability, but no one would have the mailman delivering the, the mail, the postal officer, the, uh, the the people who would be seeing her everyday life would have no idea. Uh, right. and, and it doesn't have to be a nuclear physicist. That's almost a cliche. Uh, you know, it just happened that she was one. But you you just don't know. Uh you know, other conversations I've had with people and I've discovered that uh there is just massive intellectual uh commitment where higher education would never have told me to expect it.
1: That's right. The people are, you know, infinitely rich and uh you you, you think you've read them straight off. Uh, there's so much in them. I actually think of that in the context of faith quite often because I I often um, find myself talking about it with this, particularly with this current writing, I, talking about religion in environments which are very secular. It's always very nerve wracking because I think I'm afraid I'm going to come up, meet up against all kinds of hostility. And one of the things I've found by being openly christian in secular environments is that all these people come up to you in private and tell you about their lives of faith that mm. you never knew you know and it's such a incredible privilege and so humbling and such a reminder that you know you think you know what's going on with a person or with a group of people but there's there's things that you that you don't see uh, and that uh, are always uh, there to to um, I don't know, to unsell our expectations Uh, and um, anyway, I've been very heartened by that uh, in, in work I've been doing.
0: It takes a certain amount of courage to write and then to have published a book entitled Lost in Thought that bears the subtitle, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. It takes even more courage to write the specific book that Professor Zena Hitz has written. That's because she brings us into her own mental life, her own intellectual life, and her stewardship of that life in this book. She bids us to consider our own inner lives, our own intellectual lives, and whether or not we have the courage to follow and to find those hidden pleasures of an intellectual life. It will not come without work. It will not come without time. It will not come easily. But it certainly will not come without rewards. Now I want to get into some of the, uh, the, 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 roots here and, um, not so much in classical philosophy, although you, you take us into some really interesting conversations in classical philosophy, but for sake of time, I want to go to Augustine. Okay, great. And, uh, uh so, so a, a lot of my understanding of what I do as president of a seminary, yeah. uh, and, and as a, a teacher is, is, is based in De Doctrine, uh, and 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 frankly, uh, in uh, in love as the animating uh, issue in learning, uh, yeah. love of God, love of the subject being taught, love of the students, uh, the impossibility of teaching without a reciprocity of love. And I, and by the way, that that's not limited to a Christian understanding. I mean, there's actually some kind of amour, some kind of uh, of uh, uh, of genuine relationship that has to make teaching and learning possible, and then the experience of teaching and learning just encourages it. I mean, it's, it's not by accident that children fall in love with their elementary school teachers. There's, there's mm-hmm. something that takes place in that context of learning, and uh, Augustine understood that. He also understood the dangers of uh, the intellectual life, mm-hmm. and uh, in particular, uh, curiositas, and the, the danger of the spectacle. And I, I just, you didn't really make this point emphatically, so forgive me if you did not mean to, and maybe I just made it reading your book. But it appears to me that much of higher education is precisely about the spectacle. Uh, so, But uh, uh, tell us what you were getting at in the book here.
1: Well, I was, um, it's interesting, because it's, it's something which I've expected to tangle with, um, uh, lovers of Augustine about because the the way I understand him is a bit different from I think the way others understand him. I wanted to understand in a general way what can go wrong in the intellectual life. And I thought Augustine, um, who's, you know, as we know, a a figure of incredible perceptiveness and insight into the most ordinary human things, um, that he, he, he considers this weakness in the intellect. It's part of our human concupiscence. What I think it is, is it's a love of, um, you know, it's funny because he calls it knowing for its own sake, <laughs> knowing right. for the sake of knowing, which is a little tough for me because that's language I use in a good way and he means it in a bad way. But I think what he means is something like this. When we think and when we know, we've got to be reaching out to a chunk of reality. Which for him is always going to be pointing back to god but in the most ordinary sense it's a piece of reality we have to be directed at an object and when we think for the feeling of thinking or know for the feeling of knowing then what you get is uh say a know-it-all okay these are people we all know them i'm one of them myself i was by nature um people who they, they want that thrill of knowing more than someone else or of uh, accumulating facts, but they don't really, they're not really concerned about the object of knowledge. Uh, they're not really thinking about, um, you know, the, the the piece, the chunk of the world that that knowledge is directed at. And I think it's connected to, uh, you know, Augustine, one of his main examples of curiositas is uh, his friend Olympias' love of uh, gladiator games. Right. Uh, and what's going on with that? Well, you, you know, you, there's just this thrill in seeing this um, violent uh, event, this violent drama going on before your eyes with a crowd uh, and there's something like knowledge in it that is there's things that are revealed about human beings in those moments. But one of the signs that something's off is that you keep going back to it right so Olypius keeps going back to the the gladiator matches he never actually acquires any knowledge or advances to a different stage of learning. Same reason. I think rubbernecking at traffic accidents. Okay. We, you never stop. If you have the impulse to do that, it's not as if once you've seen one, you move on the way that real learning takes place. You've got to keep looking at it.
0: Right.
1: A sign that you're engaging just with experiencing just with the feeling of learning rather than really trying to understand something. So I think for Augustine learning really has to result in growth and, uh, much of our um, much of our intellectual and perceptive lives is taken up with spectacles, and that's especially true in social media age. But can you say something a little more about why you think higher education is uh, is infected with curiositas in a special way?
0: Well, I think uh, Ag- Augustine's larger point is uh, ad majorem Dei gloriam uh, You know that uh, that the only life worth living is the life lived for the greater glory of God. And thus, not only is it an object of knowledge, it has to fit within the infinite object of knowledge, uh, the self-revealing God. And uh, so otherwise, everything just becomes completely disjointed. Everything becomes the latest book, the latest idea, the latest this, because everything, if it is not uh, situated within the greater glory of God—and by the way, Augustine Augustine understood that the pagans sometimes did that. They just didn't know why. In other words, even they could piece together by common grace, truths, uh, which is why even in the city of God, he makes very clear, not all will be lost. Much will be lost, but not all will be lost because the human beings in this new horrifying age are still going to be made in the image of God, and uh, common grace will shine through. Mothers will still love their children uh you know I, I i don't want to drone on here but uh in, in other words i think the modern university has to keep producing knowledge that that that's that's the term you know it's producing knowledge right. and uh but it's completely devoid of the context and so i don't even just mean it politically there is a political angle i just mean it you know it's this endless trap that the modern university is in of claiming to produce knowledge um uh, w- which it's kind of a self-defeating mission.
1: So now I understand what you're thinking, and I I, I I agree 100%. So I think one of the things I've been thinking about is, um, you know, uh, academic literature research um, is produced at a really enormous rate these days because of all of the requirements uh, that universities put on research professors. And it, it gets to the point where... Um, there's more written on a given topic. For instance, in my field, especially ancient philosophy, there's so much written, you couldn't possibly read it all. uh, Which was the point of having an academic literature so that you could have some, uh, be a part of a conversation that was ongoing in some way. Right. You just have this disorganized uh, collection of uh, thoughts, which no individual human being can fathom, like a sort of, uh, unsearchable database, almost. <laughs> then, you know, you're not. Um, that's not going to help anyone to grow. So, one of the, the the ways I say I think just the same thing you're saying in the book is one sign of real learning, as opposed to curiositas, is growth. That is, you um, become wiser. You uh, see, get some insight that you didn't have before. And accumulation of information doesn't necessarily do that, especially if there's no person in particular who accumulates that information. I think for someone like Augustine, and I think it's true that um, growth in learning is going to lead to God. Uh, I think that's in a way the story he tells in the confessions, right? He's, he goes on this years long uh, course of reading um, and he follows it straight down to the bottom. And he ends up in a place where he knows he needs grace. Um, and uh, I feel like that's uh, really a profound vision of how how learning functions yeah. at its best.
0: It's a wonderful, uh, very sweet part of that story, which you recount in the book. And that is Ambrose, uh, the great Bishop of Milan, uh, telling Monica, Augustine's mother, to just let his mind work because his mind will get to this. Um, yes, and we'll get to his sin and we'll get to his need. And it's just a very sweet story. I, I think that's very good evangelistic advice for a lot of us. Uh stay in conversation. Give them more to read. And let 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 the mind work. And of course, as a Christian, I don't believe the mind's ever alone. Uh you, yeah. you've got the Holy Spirit yeah. uh doing a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. But uh I, I I was I was very touched by the way you uh, you incorporated that into your account of Augustine. in In my own uh, intellectual life, so many twists and turns, but one of them came when I was uh, seventeen and uh, still in high school, and I was assigned uh, reading the existentialists, uh, Jean Paul Sartre, uh, Camus, and uh, so he, he, here here was my seventeen year old cynicism. I just I, I I was reading those works and. I mean, there's a sense in which they can be pretty exhilarating. Uh, another sense in which they can be pretty depressing. But nonetheless, yeah. to a 17-year-old, both of those things are pretty cool at any given moment of the day. And so as I was reading it, but what, what came to my mind was, yeah, but nobody actually can live this. Um, You know, I don't know how you'd, you know, write nausea and uh, and then ask someone out to dinner. You know, I mean, it's just... <laughs> Uh, It was it was the realization to me that I was not going to be intellectually satisfied until I found some truth, some understanding, uh, which I found in Christ, uh, in in historic biblical Christianity and in understanding how all the story fits together, because otherwise I can't sleep. And and I I would never be able to enjoy a meal or a conversation.
1: (laughs) That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah
0: but you uh in 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 your book you talk about something else that came to me shortly thereafter when uh, i ended up uh just by god's providence in uh in a context of uh rampant early postmodernism mm-hmm. and uh, and i and i mean every one of those words rampant and early and postmodernism it was the uncut uh theorizing of yeah. uh, uh, of postmodernism And uh, that's where I encountered something else you deal with in the book, which is the imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I encountered it as a temptation to act as if these people were making sense and I understood they were making sense. And (laughs) actually, I could not bring myself to do that because they weren't making sense. And I couldn't say they were making sense. But I was amazed how students would immediately start to pick up the language, especially all the theorizing. And the next thing you know, nothing meant anything. Yeah, uh, um, but that 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 is an intellectual danger that isn't limited to postmodern, to poststructuralist, to late modernity. I, I, I think as a Christian, I have to look at that and say that imposter syndrome comes as a very uh, close besetting sin for Christian intellectuals.
1: Oh, I think any any um, any community can develop its own in way of talking that they suggest to an outsider, you know, if you don't, if you can't already talk like this, you're not one of us. Whereas for real learning to take place, you, things have to be honest. You know, you need an environment where someone can say, you know what, I don't, I don't really know what you mean by, um, X piece of Christian doctrine. Um, no, I don't know. I don't really know what you mean by low Christology or high Christology. I don't know what you mean by this or that or the other thing. If you don't have that environment where people feel comfortable being, voicing an honest question, then, then you're really running a high risk of, uh, yeah, people just throwing themselves into the language without necessarily knowing what the words mean. Um, and, uh, and then I think that's when intellectual life, that's one way intellectual life becomes, uh, a way of being uh, you know, what C. S. Lewis called uh, the inner ring, right? To join right. the inner ring. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, such a wonderful essay, um, which in a way is haunting parts of my book. Um and uh so yeah, and I I think one of the things I've learned is over the years, I you know, I'm I've never been trained in postmodernism. I'm I'm not a theory-driven sort of a person. I've always kept myself deliberately removed from that sort of stuff, but I have encountered it various times uh, as a scholar in various collaborative contexts, and I have to say that there's often something serious there underneath the jargon, some serious piece of learning or reality that's that's there. And uh, again, if 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 we were more welcoming in our intellectual communities and uh, more concerned with uh, bringing people in uh, and giving them space to ask uh, any honest question, I think we'd find it easier to get whatever learning we can out of these various fields uh, and and communicate with one another. Uh, we we sort of uh, put ourselves into silos um, by by inventing kinds of jargon and and not being willing to break out of them.
0: So you were heavily invested in traditional. Academia, uh, yeah. teaching in uh, two rather large state universities, and uh, and no doubt doing very well. And then mm-hmm. at some point you decided to leave all that and to go to Canada uh, to live in a kind of a, a monastic setting. That's right. And uh, that now you're at a very different kind of academic institution, but actually where you also went as an undergraduate. That's right. And so um, I think it'd be very helpful uh, in this conversation if you would kind of lay out uh, a bit of that story and and I- explain what makes, for instance, uh, St. John's different than, um, than the other institutions where you taught.
1: Well, uh, as I relate the story in the book, um, a lot of what happened to me was a personal struggle with particular demons. Mm-hmm. So I was by nature. I am by nature a very competitive, ambitious person, and also by nature someone who loves learning uh, and thinking. And uh, have you know having ended up by some lucky chances in some elite academic context as a graduate student, um, the, the prestige-oriented parts of myself, the ambition parts, the superficial uh, you know advance in the status ranking parts became uh, really uh, kind of predominant. Uh, you can get sort of addicted. P- people talk a lot about um, the pain of exclusion or the pain of uh, um, being ex- uh, left out of something or marginalized. But there's also dangers in being included. That is, you know, the, the carrot can be worse for you than the stick uh, in a lot of ways. <laughs> so you know, you get a taste of this kind of pers- high perceived success and you just want more and more of it. So I was in that condition, that was part of what was going on. Uh, and I had to break out of it. And so I did something very traditional in the end, uh, spent three years in the desert in this uh, Canadian community grappling with demons and um, finally came to a resolution which was to t- return to my, to my old school and teach um, young people like myself. Uh, the difference I'd say between the two kinds of institution was, was very dramatic. More dramatic even than I thought it would be before I came back to teach. That is when I made the decision to come back to teach. Um, When I was teaching at the public universities, uh, I had very, pretty much, pretty large classes. Uh, You know, the smallest were maybe 25 to 30. Now, every classroom has gold in it. You know, there were always students who really loved learning, who caught fire you know, who I formed real mentoring relationships with. Every classroom I've ever taught in was like that. But on the whole, my job was something more like management. Uh, you know, I would spit out, you know, I would present, thanks to my expertise, some uh, some little bullet point pieces of knowledge. I'd expect my students to do some reading. I'd expect them to show that they'd done it. I'd expect them to to give the bullet points back to me in some way or other. And I always wanted them to also reflect some independence, but I couldn't demand that. You know, I could hold it up as an ideal, but I couldn't, say to, I couldn't demand as a requirement for the class that each of these 60 students or 50 students think for themselves. So that meant a lot of what I was doing was very mechanical. It was like, they spit out, you know, I spit out the bullet points, they spit them back to me, I give them a B plus, they go on their way. Um, and th- there's just not a lot that's really worth doing in that exercise in the end. Sometimes I think there's probably a seed to something that blossoms later, but if you don't want to be somewhere and all you're looking after is the B+, or likewise, if you're a teacher and all you want is to get these students out of your classroom with as little grading as possible, then you're just not going to be, um, you're not forming what you were saying earlier about how learning requires love. Uh, That is, I would say it requires Uh, real human relationships between uh, students and teachers. It needs to be person to person. Um, Our personal connection with one another is what makes learning, uh, which is what transmits learning from one generation to the next. And uh, that was really not easy to, that was a a kind of byproduct of what I was doing at those other schools and not the main point. So what I found at St. John's was, uh, it was taken for granted that our students were adults, that they had minds of their own, they had questions of their own, that they were ultimately responsible for their education. And uh, we did that sort of, we do that sort of by fiat. You know, we say, they don't always want to be adults. <laughs> they don't always want to take responsibility. You just keep giving it back to them, keep giving them the power back to them and and they surprise you. So i found, um, Seeing, knowing my students well, uh, knowing how to calibrate uh, encouragement or discouragement, realizing from close up actually how much more encouragement matters than discouragement in most cases. (laughs) Become a much more positive uh, teacher than I think I used to be. Uh, And you see with your own eyes what happens to the students in this environment and how much they change and how much they grow and how grateful they are for it. So it has, uh, Teaching at St. John's has so much right in the moment uh, obvious worth to both the students and the teachers. Uh, it's just not uh, mechanized like it is in the big schools.
0: So let me ask you a pointed question. So um, in the world of higher education, there's a lot of respect for the, uh, the the method of teaching there at St. John's. There's also a sense of... Uh, Yep, but they pretty much got the market. That's about all the 18-year-olds who really want that. <laughs> uh, and I, I have to say, in conversation with people, I want to say that's not so. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but it is not clear that all the parents of 18-year-olds want 18-year-olds to have that kind of education. It's not clear that legislators... Uh, who are uh, apportioning uh, tax money want to give any financial encouragement for that kind of model. It's not clear that corporate America and their recruiting uh, is going to be looking for someone with uh, that kind of education uh, or that uh, the scholastic aptitude test or anything else is pointed towards it. So it it, it, it takes an awful lot of, I think, a Flannery O'Connor here. You have to push uh, uh, against the age as hard as it's pushing against you. It takes an awful lot of pushing Uh, to uh, justify uh, and carry out that kind of uh, commitment to learning. Uh,
1: No, I think that's right. And it's one of the reasons why when I began this endeavor, uh, I I wasn't truthfully all that that hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Because Because I see all the things that you're saying. I actually think one point, this may be a small point, I think that corporations actually do value this type of education. I think there is a kind of secret undercurrent mm-hmm. that people know that liberal arts education is what really matters so i know for instance it's often said that the, the um the big executives in silicon valley they don't send their kids to the uh, google classrooms <laughs> they send exactly. their kids to all yeah. schools where they get personal mentoring and uh, hands-on projects uh so i think that people do know uh, about that the other thing that I think that's recent that's, that I thought was really encouraging was came out of this pandemic stuff that when all that teaching went online and my first fear was, geez, this is going to be the end. We're never going to get offline again because it's so much cheaper uh, for the administrations to run us online. Uh, and you know it's a way of beefing up enrollment indefinitely and so on. But then the college students around the country just gave it the big Bronx cheer. They just don't like it. They made it clear they wouldn't come back to campuses if they were online. Some some students sued their colleges for giving them inferior product for the same tuition. So I I think I guess I have a bit more hope for the young people. I think they want this kind of learning. They if they the more they see of it, the more they'll like it. And so it's the parents, you know, (laughs) in a certain way, are the people who need the most persuading. And uh, I do think that. One one strategy I've I've tried to take it that I recommend is is to buy, be more honest about why you think this, these things matter, because we were saying for years, humanists like myself, oh well, you know, it builds your critical thinking skills, and oh well, you know, it gives you a spirit of innovation, and oh well, it makes you a better person, but that's not why any of us uh, study liberal arts. We do it because we want to understand the way the world works and what a human being is and because we're reaching for God and all these things. So uh, I'm, I'm trying, I'm hoping that just speaking honestly will, will, will help to open things up. And in the crisis that's coming too, it's a lot of destruction possible, but, but also I think some hope uh, for, for new, new possibilities to open up.
0: That's part of the reason why here uh, in our undergraduate uh, college, Boyce college, we started a classical Christian studies program which has attracted some really outstanding young people and faculty and yes. uh and also uh the uh, uh augustine honors collegium uh which is our honor school program and uh by the way there how interesting is that upon reflection you know that uh, augustine would find his name on a program in a southern baptist institution <laughs> but
1: uh
0: i i will just declare personal privilege there and uh, <laughs>
1: Sure,
0: he'd be delighted. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where you realize I think. Well, let me let me take out the I think. I'm really convinced that the uh, the people who have the most at stake here are are theists, and specifically those who are committed to historic Christianity, and specifically those who understand that the continuation of the Christian mind and of Christian uh, thinking is going to take far more intentionality than i think most christians had had thought a generation ago
1: yeah so i do think that that's um you know talking about the classical schools movie, i mean that that's really a pretty huge christian classical schools that's really uh really blossomed in the past 20 absolutely years. uh so that's another encouraging sign i i do think that uh i think that we're all that everyone is has a lot to lose from things going on as they are in education. And, um, you know, I, I, cause one of the things I'm worried about is, um, you know, it's so funny when I started writing, I was, I wanted to get uh, politics out of intellectual life and in a way I still do. <laughs> but in another way, I'm more and more alarmed that, um, you know, we, we've become more autocratic uh more totalitarian uh less egalitarian less a community of of equals who deliberate in common and uh i, I think that actually it's true that uh, how you're educated affects that so so one of the things i'm really hoping for is you know that the whole community all of us together christian and non-christians start to reach for for alternatives um because uh it's it's not going to be good for even for Christians, if we can carve out something for ourselves and there's reason for us to, to fight for that first, you know, we still have these uh, millions of brothers and sisters <laughs> who, needs, who need the uh, basics of life. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I hope that we can all get out of this uh, some way or other.
0: Well said. You conclude your book with these words. Let us remind ourselves of the broad scope of human enterprise, as well as the depths available to anyone with a bit of time to think. Let us give free play to the human intellect and the human imagination in an attempt to ground all that is in our hearts in what matters most. A beautiful way to end the book, but uh, but not to end an argument. The argument continues, and uh, I'm very thankful that the conversation continues as well. And I really want to thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public.
1: It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Miller. Thank you so much for reading and for talking uh, the conversation.
0: I really did enjoy my conversation with professor, teacher, tutor, and author Zena Hitz, I enjoyed the conversation because it took us so many different places. That is the character of a good book. It is the character of a good conversation. Listening to this conversation today, you can immediately understand why Zena Hitz would be such an influential tutor and effective teacher in just about any setting, but particularly in the setting of an institution that is committed to reading and conversing together about the great questions of life. Listening to this conversation today, you can certainly understand why Professor Zena Hitz would be such an effective teacher, a winsome teacher, how she would basically be winsome in her call to students unto this hidden intellectual life, the hidden pleasures of the intellectual life. That's one of the most important aspects of teaching. Teaching is, in this sense, a form of holding out a vision before students such that they see it And want it for themselves. The intellectual life does take discipline, but it is also appetitive. That is to say, the more we give ourselves to it, the greater our appetite for it. And like so many other appetites, the best appetites, it can be communicated to another. It can be shared with another who will then participate and partake of the same appetite and learn that vast universe of books and ideas and minds that we can turn to as a part of a perpetual conversation. Like every one of these programs, the point is to leave the conversation as just that, a conversation that's never really concluded. There's one dimension of this conversation that I think does demand a bit of evangelical contemplation and consideration. As the conversation made clear, it is not an accident that Professor Zena Hitz is a Roman Catholic. It's not an accident that so much of the work about the Christian intellectual tradition has been undertaken by those who are very closely associated with the Roman Catholic tradition, their identity wrapped up as Roman Catholic and as intellectual. The question is for evangelicals, why? Why has, relatively speaking, our own intellectual investment been less substantial? Well, for one thing, Protestantism is time-stamped. Let's just say that we could begin the Protestant experience going back to a year like 1517. That's a millennium and a half after the larger conversation had started and was identified as Catholicism. You can also understand that English-speaking evangelicalism as a subset of Protestantism has an even more recent history. But there are a few other issues. I'm going to point to evangelism and ecclesiology and eschatology. First, when it comes to evangelism, evangelicalism by definition is primarily, first of all, committed to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the taking of the gospel to the nations. That preoccupies a great deal of evangelical commitment and evangelical attention. That's why when you find evangelicalism, you find, first of all, commitment to mission boards and evangelistic movements. Only thereafter does education come into the picture. It comes into the picture in a big way, but it comes into the picture in a certain sequence. Thus, the evangelistic imperative, the Great Commission imperative of evangelicalism, means that we are an activist group, and that sometimes means that contemplation and the intellectual life have to take a back seat. The second issue is ecclesiology. Roman Catholics look to the Roman Catholic Church and to the magisterium and are there officially authorized to undertake this intellectual endeavor for the cause of the Catholic Church. That's a very different understanding than we find in evangelicalism. There is no evangelical magisterium. There is no evangelical papacy. There is no evangelical Vatican. There is no one to give authorization or a sense of invested mission to individuals or schools or organizations to undertake this intellectual endeavor. But there's a third issue here, and that is eschatology. The distinction between Catholic and Protestant, particularly evangelical, understandings of eschatology Has intellectual ramifications. There are effects, there are consequences. The Roman Catholic approach to a very long eschatological horizon means that you have Roman Catholic institutions and centuries and centuries of investment in those institutions. It's a very long, very secure weight in Roman Catholic theology. Whereas in evangelicalism, there is a sense, regardless of the specific eschatological position, of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a sense that even as we pray, Lord, come quickly, that there is only so much time in this life to give to the kinds of institutions, the kind of movements that will be deeply invested for a very long wait. And as you're looking at that, you recognize theologies, like ideas, have consequences. But a book like Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, And a conversation, as I just had, with someone so gracious and generous and thoughtful as Professor Zena Hitz, underlines the fact that it is not only good to read such a book and then to read it again, but to have a conversation with the author, which is a genuine privilege. Thanks for listening to Thinking in Public. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.